Good evening and welcome to the Apologetics.com radio show. I'm Harry Edwards, your host for the evening. This show is uh, a show where we like to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Tonight we'll be discussing something that some might consider not in the field of apologetics. And maybe we'll get to do an apologetics on this particular apologetics. But we're going to be talking about nationalism versus globalism and how should Christians think or respond to this idea that I believe affects all of us. But before we get into our topic tonight, I'd like to remind our listeners that we are supported entirely by your generous donations. If you are a first-time listener, live or on our podcast, welcome. If you find our shows are valuable and wish to see it continue, please donate by going to our website, www.apologetics.com, and click on the Donate button. Your partnership will help us remain on the air. So, uh, all right, gentlemen, um, Lenny and Jacob, welcome again, my trusted, fearless friends when it comes to uh, hard topics. <laughs> well, you know, before we start, I, I always like to ask you guys how you're doing, how can we pray for you? Uh, so, Lenny, let's start with you. How are things at your ministry? Uh, doing well. Uh, things have been uh, going. Of course, I've been laid up a little bit, uh, had a bicycle spill and broke my hip, but I've healed fairly well, so that's always a good thing, and uh, back to uh, doing some activities again, things like that, so that's been going well. That's, that's good. Going well. That's good. Uh, leg is healing just yeah. fine. Got right? to do some Zoom meetings with some college kids and all of that stuff in the interim, so that's always helpful. Nice, <laughs> nice. Why don't you tell our audience uh, where they can know more about your site and your ministry oh, and details like sure, that? Sure, yeah. So uh, we've been, matter of fact, this is my, uh, in April of 1996, I started online apologetics. I was one of the originators, I guess, of an, the, an online apologetics ministry. And they, so we're celebrating our 25th year of online ministry now. 25. Yeah. No way. Uh, so we're just behind you by a few years. Just by a couple. Yeah, just by a Comereason.org <laughs> is still there. And, uh, yeah, you can uh, you can uh, launch and find all things uh, pertaining to that, all the different aspects of uh, questions and things that we've done. So, All right. Thanks, Lenny. How about you, Jacob? Uh, before I mention anything, I need to say that, Lenny, I need to call you the grandfather <laughs> of apologetics. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Uh, our audience can't see this, but yeah. I was just bowing to yeah, Lenny. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we, yeah, I, I I tell people, you know, it's fourteen four modem days. I mean, it was the, it was the gray page days of Netscape two point and all, oh, it was something else. So. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, thank you so much for uh, this opportunity again, Harry, to be in the show um, with you and Lenny. I always enjoy this. This is uh, you know, even if it's midnight, it's it's a time of. I think I'm most awake <laughs> in the studio. You're a yeah. night person, right? <laughs> I'm a night Both person. of you guys, right? I'm more of a morning primarily. Okay. All right. I, I so normally get up at 5:30. 1 so. out of 3. So, so it's been a busy season for us. Praise God for that. And um we are right in the thick of engaging with parents, uh, grandparents, community members. Even uh, uh today I actually connected with the state representative on the whole issue of critical race theory and to confront our culture, you know, just on that very issue and to combat this ideology that is taking inroads in our Christian institutions and churches and even in our homes. Uh, so we're right, right in the thick of it. 
Uh, praise God for the, all the opportunities, doors that God is opening. And yeah, we're doing good at Heritage Council. And if you have, anyone would like to learn more about it, they can go to heritagecouncil.org. It's heritagecouncil, as in counseling.org. And also, if anyone is interested to learn more about what critical race theory is and to learn uh, as Christians what should be our approach, uh, I would encourage them to check out on YouTube. The channel is called Hash Equal Justice together hash equal justice and they'll find all our podcasts and interviews uh, great resources there yeah you're also involved with this uh facebook ministry uh did you just talk about equal justice equal justice it's okay. also on uh, social media on social facebook media. Uh, same handle uh hash equal justice very good very good all right so tonight let's uh get into this so nationalism versus globalism what's that all about um i mean we can i can say more about it, but i'd like to hear from you guys L- let's define our terms what's nationalism well i would say nationalism is where one's primary allegiances and uh, one's feelings of responsibility lie within one's national affiliations. So, uh, for example, um, the ultimate authority, perhaps, as to why or, or, or where our laws should come from and to whom we should be beholden would be maybe our national government. This is politically I'm talking about, uh, as opposed to a world council or uh, the United Nations or something to that effect. So, Or to the, a higher authority like God. Well, yeah. uh, which is why I yeah. said politically. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. yeah it, it, some people take nationalism to an extreme and it becomes nationalism is equated with God or... or, or A kind the, of civil religion. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they kind of uh, conflate the idea of, of um, patriotism and... Um, In our case, Christianity. Yeah, yeah and the, right. and... and, and uh, Fidelity to theism, fidelity to to their beliefs, which is not what we would recommend as Christians. It's not the the stance that's appropriate. But but if it's if it's is the ultimate authority a specific nation, or is the ultimate authority all human beings across the earth and the governing entities that come together to manage the global individuals that then nationalism is the former and globalism would be the latter. Okay. Good segue to globalism. So what then is globalism? Jacob, you want to? Oh, um, <laughs> before, before I do that, I, I, I just want to uh, mention this definition, which I found to be really interesting. Um, um, for nationalism, there are two phenomena under it, um, and I'm borrowing this from Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, no. and they divide it really well. They say that it's the attitude that the members of a nation have when they care about their national identity. So it's an attitude. Mm. And the second it says is that the action that the members of a nation take when seeking to achieve self-determination. Yeah. So it's both an attitude and an action towards, and uh, uh, this is what I would say, um, nationalism for a Christian is one being uh, authentic citizens of nation whose author is God. And God is the author of nations, uh, not nations as, as we find in the different variants today, but the very idea of nation. Mm. Uh, being rightful citizens of it. Now, globalism, uh, basically, it's an attempt to understand um, 
the interconnection of modern world, right? Um, and also to highlight the patterns that underlie these networks. And this can be uh, transcontinental. It spread, spreads out around the world. And it can, um, it can have two different, uh, different variances. One is thin globalism and thick globalism. Thin globalism would be one where we have seen in olden times as to how people would travel from one continent to other, and it would be limited to that. Whereas thick uh, uh, globalism is one that basically takes the shape of globalization. So when globalism turns into thick globalism, it equates with globalization. That's what we see in, in our world today. But this phenomenon of globalism is basically usually understood as going out. But that's not necessarily the case, as we see in the biblical pattern that we have at the Tower of Babel, where everyone comes together, mm. right, in one place. It's not just going and out and connecting with other nations and uh, uh, be it for economic reason or social reason or whatever it may be. But it's also coming together in one place uh, concerning any matter, right? And I think uh, the, yeah. the best... Or the best um, Pertinent, most recent pertinent example of this is uh, Britain and Brexit. Yes. So you have, you know, who who is it that ultimately uh, speaks for us as a people, and and who is it that we ultimately recognize as our authority? Is it people in Brussels mm. who have competing interests that may not favor us as as British citizens, or is it the Parliament and? those individuals to whom we elect and to whom we uh, have actually uh, made accountable to right, ourselves. Right. So, so that's good. So on the one hand, you've got, let's say, nationalism. And like you were saying, Lenny, a good example would be nationalism would be like Great Britain removing themselves from the EU, yes. right? And then globalism was like the project of the EU, like – also the United Nations and NATO and things like that, when there's a sort of a melding of institutions. And it, it's not just because it's getting bigger, like I think we were talking about this, Jacob, but because um, we're finding that the power might lie sort of uh, in the center when there's mm -hmm. a, a bigger uh, uniting of forces, let's yeah. say. Maybe they're thinking that things would be better typically if we are just bigger yeah at the same time you know just uh, that's the the norm that we have seen with regards to globalism that power is centralized in some sense but that's not necessarily the case uh, given the example of the whole crypto world today hmm. where it is globalized everyone is participating from around the world but power is decentralized so there are two forms that we are seeing emerging uh, in, in our modern world today so yeah, th that's that's really a nice nuance. Uh, what are so our listeners are are kind of getting the idea here? And, and by the way, at, at some point, I, I want to interject and say, so what? What's going on? Why does this matter? Right? But hmm. let's continue to hash out uh, nationalism. So what what are some of the let's say forms? Now I've been hearing this from Christian circles that um, th there's an unhealthy form of Christian nationalism, and it's uh, mentioned in, in, in typically bad terms, you know, 
Uh, so, I mean, I have some examples in mind, but I, I think you guys can come up with really good examples, and I, I know they're obvious ones too. So, w- what's an example of maybe someone being uh, legitimately charged with uh, too, being too nationalistic or, or just unhealthily uh, aligned with nationalism? Well, what I would think be an I think there's a uh, and. Part of the problem comes today with the lack of clarity on understanding moral frameworks. Sometimes people equate political positions as moral positions. And because of that, they can then start to equate political parties as morally good and morally bad, or your affiliation with a political party as some what of a representation of your faith commitments ultimately it starts you start to blend and misalign the duties of god versus the duties of a person to his country and i i, I you know osgenis does this very well where he talks about paying taxes to caesar that are caesar's and give unto god which is god's when jesus was asked that he says Caesar does have some authority, God-given authority, but it's limited. And there is something to say to that. And God wants to speak into Caesar, but there is no such thing as because God has given Caesar some authority, then that questioning Caesar is somehow uh, being against God or something like that. And, that, mm. that's, and that's, the, that's the problem with... with the way I understand those folks who define Christian nationalism that way is they conflate the idea of their Christianity and their nationalism are just two parts of that same coin, and to deny one side would be to deny the other. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right, uh, Lenny, and I think much of our confusion about nationalism is because of our misunderstanding of the very structure of governance. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Scripture is very clear. God is sovereign over the structure of governance, be yes. it civil government, church government, or family government, ultimately. There is definitely uh, a place for separation of church and state, uh, but that doesn't con- thereby we, don't, we can't conclude that there's a separation between God and church and God right. and state. Right? While Jesus... We have to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. The proclamation that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not also means that Jesus is Lord over Caesar. Right. And that's what we should be keeping in mind. When we conflate that very idea of separating Jesus to the realm of private worship, whereas rendering to Caesar all that we can and and being so political that we actually bring Jesus under Caesar, and that can become problematic. Yeah, you know, I, I don't hear a lot of preachers and lecturers or professors say this, but the passage where Jesus was asked that, right, and, and points to the coin and there's the image of Caesar uh, on the coin, and then that's when we hear the famous uh, verse about render to Caesar, which is Caesar's, and God to uh, render to God, which is belongs to God. I've always thought that that could also have maybe a double meaning. I don't know if Jesus meant it, but uh, it, in essence, everything is imprinted in, in God, it, by God since it comes from God. And so perhaps like you were just saying, uh, to, to just support what you just said, Jacob, that 
everything does belong to God, even yeah. Caesar. Yes, it, well, so whose image is on there? Caesar's image, but Caesar bears the image of God. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And, and also, we need to understand that it is God who sets the jurisdiction of That's right. these That's right. uh, gov- uh, spheres of governance. Yes. Right. And, so, and, so one has to remain. Even Romans thirteen is a reminder of that very thing that they've been given the jurisdiction of justice, right? Right. Uh, and in our culture today, the confusion is when the church moves from that sphere of jurisdiction and engages in other spheres. For right. example, when 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 the state is becomes responsible to be compassionate towards others, which is church's role, right? Right. They're crossing that jurisdiction that's been given to them. So what happens when state does it? It steals from one and gives to other. Mm-hmm. And that's not their role. It has to be done volitionally. It has to be done uh, being motivated right. to do that, which is a church's role to do, right. to be compassionate You're and right. be available to people, to speak into their lives and provide for what is necessary. Whereas with the state, it has its own jurisdiction that it must remain in. When it crosses that we have all the right to question it because they're crossing the jurisdiction that God has set, right, right. not us. And, and just uh, to clarify what I said, I'm not saying that there isn't uh, a proper role for government. I'm not saying that because there is. Uh, and Romans 13 uh, yes. validates that. But you're right. It, it is limited and still, uh, again, for any fair reading of Romans 13, uh, the uh, underlying foundation of that is mm-hmm. uh, God is in charge. Of this. Yes. Otherwise, Romans 13 actually does not make any sense at all. Uh, because later on, I mean, uh, y- y- you know, we, uh, uh, Paul talks about uh, loving each other, and, and, and those are definitely not state uh, type well, things. E- even in the ancient, even in the Old Testament, even in the Israelite theocracy, it was set up that way. The, the priestly class came out of the tribe of Levi. But the kingly line came out of the tribe of Judah, mm-hmm. and any time a king tried to be a priest, he was struck down yeah. for it. However, yeah. even when David was king, Nathan the prophet came to him and dressed him down for disobeying God's law. So that's the that's a, a really good example of how it's supposed to work. Yeah. yeah, and also we need to understand uh, the very great commission that we talk about. It starts with. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. So go, therefore, mm-hmm. and make yeah. disciples of all nations. Right, right. Right? And it's very clear. And I think, uh, especially with, with what we are seeing in our culture today, we should be asking, have we been discipling our nation well? Mm. Yeah, yeah. All right, very good. Uh, how about some examples of globalism? Uh, what are you seeing out there uh, that, that that is staring us uh, daily sometimes in the face? Uh, how about uh, the uh, United Nations uh, International Commission on Human Rights, you know, where, where all of a sudden they come up with a certain standard of how we should treat one another based on what? What? what just agreement, just popular opinion of today. What what happens yeah. in ten years or twenty years when that opinion changes? You know, what's the foundation of that? If it's not because all moral precepts have to have their founding in something that transcends humanity, otherwise, it's really just relativism dressed up as authoritative garb. So, and also, I think if we abandon the right kind of uh, nationalism, uh, right kind of patriotism. 
And if we, uh, um, while doing that, if we adopt uh, the notion of globalism, uh, we end up. Uh, I'm speaking uh, what in terms of what's happening in our culture today, or what is being adopted even in terms of geopolitics, is that we tend to adopt the very idea of distributive justice and we get stuck in that. In doing that, what we do is that, usually in history what we've seen is that we don't bring other nations to the level of our nation. We tend to usually go to the level of other nations so that we can actually distribute our resources to them, right? Whereas, um, and the question is, is that a right way of guarding the resources, that God has provided mm. to, a, to a people group, a nation that must be responsible to handle it well. Right. I'm not saying that we can't be helpful, we can't be generous, we must, but it is not resting on, on the principle of uh, limiting ourselves to the, the idea of distributive justice, where we should be calling these nations to submit to the will of God as well. Right, right. I like that. Uh, it's just like we're lowering our standards to meet the lowest common den- common denominator rather than maybe lifting other nations up. And so because nowadays we are uh, uh, doing the former and that is seen as global, you know, globalism and, and that's seen as, you know, uh, let's say even the Paris Accord. Now, I don't know much about uh, the environmental issues, but th- apparently the Paris Accord was like uh, a lot of nations were saying, no, we must belong there. And so there's that pressure to belong. And so now in this new administration, we uh, have signed up again with this Paris Accord. And to be honest, I, I don't know much about it. It's just it's interesting when you read the news, you just hear peer pressure from world leaders, and then literally we're pressured to belong. I, I think that's part of globalism too. And we were talking a minute ago or a while driving up here, Jacob, how I think technology is being used to uh, en- enhance or uh, speed up the idea of globalism. And how is that really uh, enhancing that? I think... It, it's uh, it's an ability to consolidate power, centralize power. If, let's say, all of our identities are in this one huge database, I know, like, for instance, China right now, they're tracking facial recognition in, in streets and everything, and, and they're beginning to assign social credit to people so that you are now judged by the state as X well, De- depending on your movements, depending on your behavior, depending on your purchases. It can, like- it can even be more insidious than that. It can be um, a transmission of ideas that that shape a culture because of uh, popularity in media uh, in, in just popular uh, cultural reference. So, for example, I remember um, I had a friend in the 80s who had came out from Australia, and he was really, really excited to experience Halloween because they didn't, you know, coming from the English tradition, they didn't really do Halloween the way the U.S. does Halloween. But he knew all about it from watching television shows that were popular in America. And so he had an idea of what Halloween is. or, or And, and that, was, that kind of thing also translates when we start talking about, you know, Boyfriend and girlfriend may be sleeping together because they're popular on that show or, or what ha- uh, ideas on what's appropriate uh, abortion or, what, you know, pick, pick whatever popular cultural referent 
is the hot button that everybody's trying to communicate. You know, did, did Will and Grace make a profound change, not only in our culture, but in all of the different areas of the world where that was syndicated? It probably made it. In, so so there's an area of globalization that that is kind of called technologically driven, but it's it's not. You know, it, it it's, falls under the radar. I'm going to call uh, – I have a new definition for globalism. It's uh, international peer pressure, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, maybe in the second hour in, – in the second hour because we don't have uh, much in t- uh, before we get into a break. But we definitely want to cover the so what-ness of this. Like so what, what – why are we talking about – nationalism versus globalism what uh so what right what how does this concern uh the citizens of the united states or christians why living Im- here yeah why is yeah. it important to yeah christians why is it important specifically well i would say that um we all know that ideas have consequences and politics is how you deliver the ideas how you how you execute the ideas that people hold in uh, a real-time scenario. So there, it's the practical outcome of how those ideas are delivered to the masses. So it's like an apologetic for this kind of apologetics that we're doing. Um, so I, I know uh, just if anyone is interested, some of the ideas uh, we have gleaned from folks, experts like Oz Guinness, for sure. Uh, one is Glenn Sunshine. Uh, who, who else might... I mean, of course, the classics, Augustine, Calvin, Aristotle. Um, but yes, uh, the contem- contemporary ones we just mentioned. And some of their books, like, for instance, I'm uh, the one I'm, I've read or uh, continue to read, a favorite of mine is A Free People's Suicide by Os Guinness. Another one is uh, The Last Call for Liberty. Uh, why don't you mention the uh, Glenn Sunshine book? Um, it's called Slaying Leviathan, and um, it, the subtitle is Limited Government and Resistance in the Christian Tradition. Um, and recently I actually interviewed him on related topic, and if anyone is interested, they can actually Google it, Glenn Sunshine with Jacob Daniel, uh, and you can actually access um, that discussion as well. Okay, that's very good. And so... Uh, I'm hearing the music. That means we're coming up on a station break. So please stay tuned and we'll be right back after a few commercials. The mission of apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. 
This is John MacArthur. Please join me for today's Portraits of Grace. When you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you became a new creation, and your life began to center on Him rather than yourself. The Holy Spirit began to transform your attitudes and your actions. As a result, you started pursuing God's glory instead of worldly pleasures. But I must admonish you, just as Paul did to the Corinthians, test yourselves to see if you're really in the faith. Examine yourselves. Don't ever be deluded about your relationship with Christ. Did those changes really take place? Do you now have a living hope? Are you fixed on a glorious eternal inheritance? Has your life changed? Be sure your faith is real. That's the most important issue of all. This is John MacArthur encouraging you to live as portraits of grace. You might be surprised to know that Jesus never used the word grace. Hello, I'm Chuck Swindoll. Jesus certainly never used the word grace as a sermon title or wrote an essay about it. He just lived it. And actually, the Bible never gives us a definition of grace, though it's full of it. Scene after scene in the scriptures illustrates grace. Grace goes back to an old Hebrew term that means to bend or stoop. Perhaps the best way to describe grace is with the idea of condescending favor. Condescending, bending down. God did that. He bent down to bestow grace. How I love that word. Pastor and teacher Chuck Swindoll. Visit Insight for Living's website at insight.org. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the second half hour of our show. Uh, I'm Harry Edwards, your host for the evening. This is a show in which we like to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. And tonight our topic is nationalism versus globalism. How should Christians think or respond to this idea? So uh, in the uh, first half hour, uh, we all talked about uh, and tried to define nationalism and tried to define globalism. We tried to give examples of each. And so really the second half hour, we want to maybe find out what the big deal is. So, So why are we talking about this? Why does this affect us? Why should we care about it? And uh, and perhaps, uh, you know, identify some real problems and some practical solutions. So let, let's, ha- let's have a go. Uh, why, why is this important, gentlemen? Oh, so let's, let's start with a practical example. Let's look at something like um, welfare. A couple of the interesting pieces to the welfare system— when it was initiated, it was meant to try and supposedly help those who are underprivileged survive more, uh, get them some funds so that they can raise the poverty level, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It was really, at that point, doing something that the local church had been doing and should still be doing, but this, the state decided to commoditize it and take it over. Now, leaving aside the question of whether or not it fails because it 
forces people to give to that situation. It also unknowingly reinforced a single parent paradigm by paying more as you were in worse shape. And as single women had more children, of course, they were able to draw more income. It also reinforces that because you can only have one contact within that system. So if a father wanted to come beside and and be part of the decision-making process, he can't just because the state doesn't allow two people contact for that child or things of this nature. So now you have these political motivations and they're passing legislation that has a detrimental effect on the family. And that's something, again, when the state starts to usurp the church's role and when the state starts to do things that, not that anyone was trying to do so maliciously, but because it's there and it's breaking, it's causing more breakdown and more hardship, yeah, then the church should be getting involved because it's the church's domain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I might have mentioned this maybe a thousand times, uh, Harry, and I always quote you on this uh, once I asked you, what's the definition of politics? And you mentioned applied ethics, and that made so much sense to me. And as a Christian, we are called to apply ethics, uh, biblical ethics, on all aspects of our life. And we can't uh, adopt this uh, idea that there is something called moral neutrality in culture. No, culture doesn't have moral neutrality. Um, Culture is what Van Til called um, religion externalized. Right. Right. We always enthrone a God. In our culture, it matters which God it is. So as a Christian, we all are responsible. Uh, uh, One of the examples I would give, along with your example, Lenny, is the whole critical race theory, for example. How it's taking inroads within our educational system. Uh, Not just that, policies are being made, funds are being made available, and here we are letting our children who bear the image of God and rendering them to Caesar. Yeah. Yeah, We can't do that. Yeah. As Christians, we do have a responsibility to question and to intervene and uh, for the sake of not just our own generation, but the generations to come. So we, we can't be just reactive. We've got to be proactive uh, in the task, just like John the Baptist, bringing biblical ethics to a pagan king. And in, in doing so, we might get beheaded. You know, <laughs> So be it, right? <laughs> it, it, that might happen. But in doing so... We fulfill the task that as a Christian we are called to, to speak the truth to power. Because we are not adopting the way of the world, which is will to power. Yeah. So again, we uh, we kind of put these two things together, nationalism versus globalism. And, and the idea is that there is a good form of uh, nationalism, and, and there may be some good forms of globalism. So... For the remainder of our, our time, I think we're, get, we're all in agreement that what we're really promoting is a healthy form mm-hmm. of nationalism. And, and uh, any, any extremes of anything is, is definitely not good. But in this particular case, now we're advocating for a, a healthy form of nationalism. And so uh, with that said— uh, some of the issues that I see uh, that are not healthy, and I know, Jacob, you're the ones that really brought this uh, topic to the fore, and I appreciate you for that, um, because we need to talk about this. I, I know uh, there's this common 
uh, aphorism that says, you, you know, the, the two things you don't talk about uh, at a dinner table are politics and religion. Hmm. And uh, we, we say that glibly, and now we actually are reaping the effects of that. Now we have produced a population that knows neither. We don't know how to behave and think when it comes to uh, uh, the field of politics and the same thing with religion. Uh, tonight, though, uh, we, we want to talk more about religion and, 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 and our faith and, and how a Christian ought to approach uh, uh, citizenship, how they should behave in civil society as members of the state we call the United States. So a lot of uh, what we're, what we're going to be sharing could be a lot of quotes from the founding fathers, uh, some of um, ideas behind responsible governance or what form of government actually works. So uh, some of the problems I see right now, like I mentioned, we are just deficient when it comes to politics and religion. Um, our, our nationalism is to the extreme, far left, far right, and uh, it doesn't take a genius to to know that. It's been topsy-turvy the, the last, you know, especially this last uh, elections. And uh, let's see. Uh, the, uh, the other thing personally that concerns me is that even though uh, we are a majority, all right, uh, evangelicals are a majority, our influence has declined for decades, and now you have smaller groups like I know Oz keeps mentioning this in his talks like the Jews comprise about 2% and yet their influence is far and wide uh LGBTQ uh less than 2% and yet they uh their influence is far and wide and it's just interesting how uh we Christians yes we say we are a, a nation of Christians and uh and we send missionaries all over the world, and yet our influence has steadily declined. So what's really going on here, gentlemen? I mean, what's uh, in terms of uh, our civic or lack of civic education, what is, what is going on? What, what do you think is uh, <laughs> uh, wrong with uh, what's going on with the educational system? Well, I, I, there's two things I, that questions, you know, obviously multifaceted. I think part of our problem is even in our education, we've ceded so much of it to the secular government that we don't realize how much of secularism we've now incorporated into the church. And that's a big part of it. You don't see the reinforcement of how, as we said before, uh, government should be limited. It should be, there, there are certain constrictions placed on it because it is not infallible. It is not God. It's made by not merely fallible men, but sinful men. Our founders understood this. This is why they put in the systems of checks and balances. Um, but we've, again, you know, to not not to any small degree, uh, not for no reason that we've held our constitution to be you know a, an amazing piece of governing document, just nothing like it in the world. But it's not scripture, <laughs> and and uh, we 
have taken so much of the secular world's view that we now don't know how to police that system. And, and that's why our, our civics is all secular individuals and not religious individuals. Yeah. And we need to, under, first of all, ask, what is the whole purpose of education? Academic institutions have an obligation to promote virtue. That's what their role is. The purpose of education must be truth discovering. But where we have ended up is truth making. Yes. That's what we have ended up. And we have regressed from education to create good and moral citizens to education to create professionals right. in the workplace to education to create activists. Uh, and surprisingly, the reason is simple. Uh, because people who are involved in bringing about these changes are interested in training um, our kids and people in social behavior. It is a sort of social engineering and mm -hmm. in its purest form because it abandons any hope that truth can be known or discovered, right? If truth cannot be known or discovered, uh, then the, the only task that we are left with is basically to work on our behavior towards an end. And who sets that end is an interesting question. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were talking about the role of government and uh, and and church a while ago, and uh, really in a limited form of government, there's almost n nothing that should be assigned to them that the church can't do itself. Like for instance, um, the church ought to we we ought to take back education. The church ought to take back education, and and the church used to do that, but for whatever you know, be, maybe. Because of the move toward secularity, we ceded that to the state, maybe. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted to revisit this because we see the spirit of this declining. And I'm talking about the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. And when Jefferson was tasked to write that, of course, he drew on uh, Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes, drew on John Locke. But he also drew on uh, uh, some of the ideas behind uh, Calvin and Augustine. And again, just to refresh our memory, this is like Civics 101, right? Uh, the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, I'm, I'm just going to read the first few lines. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator, with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, the the third one, uh, as uh, one expert said, originally I think it was a Lockean idea, was pursuit of property. Mm -hmm. yeah. But uh, Jefferson right. decided to change it to pursuit of happiness. Now, a lot of experts say that uh, the difference is minor and has no bearing really on the final outcome. And I tend to agree with that. But today, do you guys see that uh, that the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness is being diminished today in our culture? Uh, I would begin here. Uh, it would diminish if we fail to recognize what they said in the very first sentence that all men are created equal. So if we attempt to actually achieve these things, life, liberty, and happiness, 
through our own pursuit, keeping man as the measure of all things, then we're going to definitely disappoint ourselves. Whereas when we keep this fact that we all are created equal and there is this in, uh, divine providence that is available for us to uh, hold on to. So this is how I say when the founders were saying that all men are created equal, where were they borrowing this idea from? Though they called it self-evident, it was self-evident to a people who borrowed a, a certain kind of moral framework. And that's it, significant, like we were talking about. Exactly. That was assumed. That was already uh, in their subconsciousness. And we need to understand what was in their subconscious. And it's not something that we can sustain purely by reason. Reason alone would not give us this fact that we all are created equal. We have to latch on to the revelation. And the only place we find this revelation is in the scriptures. Right. Biblical, right? Nowhere else is it found. That's why it was only self-evident to a people group that were borrowing this idea from the scripture itself. And they were applying it on themselves. But let me also say this. I mean, this idea has not just limited uh, within the American continent. It has spread around the world and has done much good. Right. But then to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, or, 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 or uh, to achieve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, first of all, we need to actually uh, f- find our reasons yeah. on the foundation that is laid by God himself. And, and that's, that whole phrase, pursuit of happiness, it's not, it's not like... Uh, I get to go to Disneyland today because that's pursuing my happiness. It's not an emotive yeah. happiness. It's 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 being able to find and live a virtuous life right, right. without hopping through unnecessary constraints. And, and to me, what's sad is the word happiness has been co-opted to right. mean something a diminished meaning you're right like i'm happy oh because i had a full eight hours of sleep or i'm happy because i get to buy a new car no it's more of a and and we get the uh uh happiness here it comes from the uh greek word eudaimonia actually Mm. so uh, which really means shalom or completeness yeah and and so the pursuit of that is definitely uh beyond uh, nature beyond naturalism, uh, so it, it's not just that. Like you're saying, it's it's revelation. This yeah. is revelation versus reason. And also, they didn't say that pursuit of life, pursuit of liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Right. As if they assume that life and liberty I- I- is given. That's right. Yeah. Right. Whereas happiness, it, 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 it's it, the, even the whole act of virtue seeking. It's a pursuit of it. It's a continuous process that we need to be in. Well, isn't that the actual claims that God makes in Genesis? Uh, are the command? You know, He made Adam, right? He gives him life. He gives him dominion over yeah. the creation, and then He says, "Your job is to go and explore it hmm. and understand it, and and without fulfill limit. the telos, yeah, against which." So, so really. All three of those are an echo of our creation. Right, right. And and you pointed out a while ago, Jacob, which is worth noting again, that uh, we're not pursuing life. We're not pursuing liberty. These are unalienable rights. So, well, I mean, who, again, creator is capitalized here. You know, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. Uh it's hard to say that life is not 
a right because we have it. <laughs> we are living right now. And in liberty, it's how do you not have liberty, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it seems to be a uh, one of those foundational things that make humans humans. Mm-hmm. So. So anytime those things are being uh, diminished by some power, that is something that we need to be wary of. And, yeah. and, uh, 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 under this, I think there are two questions that are hidden, and we should all be asking these questions about any issue in our culture today. By what standard and to right. what purpose? Right. Those two questions. And I think it's very much hidden here as well. By what standard? By the standard that God has set, our Creator has set. Right to what purpose? To life, liberty, and to the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. In fact, you know, uh, I don't know. I'm inspired to read the uh, some more uh, be- because I think it's pertinent to our discussion. So um, I ended with the pursuit of happiness, but Jefferson went on to say that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Hmm. I mean, this is unheard of. This is unheard. No, like you, you mentioned a while ago, no other document like this exists. Is it perfect? Of course not. But I think the three of us agree it's the best we've got. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's Churchill's quote, right? Churchill says, I, "I I despise democracy only until I look around and see all the other forms of government there are out there." <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, we we have to understand that the founding fathers in the beginning they these were smart men and women um and uh they they had the chance to form something brand new yeah so they canvassed all of history and their contemporaries and go no that's not the right one no this is the right one mm-hmm. and and they they got to pick and choose and if i'm not mistaken they were aware of um uh, Aristotle's three forms of government, and actually th- through, uh, I, I guess, uh, our reading here, uh, there were some n- newly discovered uh, documents from Aristotle in the 13th century, uh, where he had, uh, and I forget the title of, of the the essay, but where he had written much about government, and and this might be. Um, where we find the three forms of government. But uh, on, on that writing, Aristotle said that uh, monarchy, all right, so there's three forms, right? But monarchy typically would lead to tyranny, all right? Help me out here. And then uh, aristocracy, which is ruled by the uh, governing class. The, the, the governing the, class, yeah, will turn into oligarchy, mm-hmm. right? Which is like a form of despotism by. By, by a few, council, by the council, right? Uh, and then a constitutional republic, such as ours, and that turns into a democracy or uh, mob a democracy rule. can lead to ochlocracy, basically uh, the rule of the mob, lawless. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So, like mob rule, yeah, which is kind of like what we 
we've gotten a taste of that. That's why the American founders offered you a republic. That's right. Which is That's basically, right. again, they were drawing it from the idea that was a gift of reformation, the whole idea of priesthood of all believers. We the people, mm-hmm. yeah. right? We have a duty and responsibility towards the very affairs of this nation. And a constitutional republic uh, means a covenant. That's where yeah. we get constitution from, is covenant. And so what? what's a... The difference between a covenant and, let's say, a contract. Because, you know, some people might think that this is a contract right. that we're uh, living under. But really, it's it's more than that. Well, a, a contract is restrictive by nature. If you're writing up a contract, you're going to put every clause in there. No matter what, I mean, <laughs> just, just look at the licensing agreement when you buy a movie these days, you know, mm-hmm. or... or um, you go to buy a car and what's included right. and what's excluded the and fine all the fine print. Right. Yeah. So, so governments are uh, – contracts in themselves are limited mm-hmm. and narrow in nature. They're also protective. How much can I get and how little do I need to give? And so they're restrictive in that sense. Covenants are the opposite. Covenants are an agreement to share a responsibility with another person or an individual for a for an end that would uh, grow in fruition for both parties. Yeah. So a covenant has a moral obligation to it as much as it does uh, a, a legal one. Right. And I think contract is more me-oriented. Yes. What I can get out of this. Right. Whereas right. covenant is more other-oriented. We, yeah. We-oriented, yeah. yeah. It reminds me of the difference between a license versus liberty, you know. It's the whole uh, freedom from, the difference between freedom from and freedom for, mm. yeah, that type of thing. Um, and so we fail to recognize and appreciate the nuance of those two things sometimes, the, the whole difference between law and grace. You know, like we think in our culture today, law is the moral ceiling when it's actually the moral floor, um, we're all the lowest common dena- denominator that dictates our behavior is law. Yeah, and, and law is given uh, for this reason that there are those who would break it, and it is so. So it is expected. It is expected of the citizens that they would not break it. They would live by a higher law, which is set by God. That's right. Right. So if if there's a nation with a law, it is given unto those who would be tempted to break it. Uh, and as Christians, we have a responsibility that we always appeal to the law of the Lord mm-hmm. above the law of the land. Yeah, and uh, we're going to close in a few minutes. So I want to end with this, uh, and I think it's an appropriate way to end. So there's this famous quote. Uh, I, I guess it was found in one of the journals of uh, a friend of the f- uh, founding fathers. When uh, a lady asked Dr. Frank- Franklin after one of the constitutional uh, conventions was over, uh, she asked, well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? And um, a republic replied the doctor, if you can keep it. So, and uh, I'm tempted to actually add to that. Okay, go ahead. If you can fight for it. You can fight for it. We know freedom <laughs> is not free, as Os Guinness would say. Yeah, you, and, and it'll only work, a covenantal uh, relationship only works with virtuous people. So yes. we have to be reminded 
about that. That's important. Maybe we need a part two for this, gentlemen. We, we barely scratched the surface here. Uh, but you've been listening to Apologetics.com radio, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Our hope is that you've learned some aspect about the Christian worldview that strengthens your faith and make you want to learn more. Special thanks to uh, Jacob and Daniel and to our engineer back there that makes everything happen, uh, makes us sound good. So, um, all right, well, we will see you uh, next week. Have a good evening. <laughs>